Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 12 through 18, and it will be found on page 347 of your Pew Bible. Again, that's 1 uh, Chronicles chapter 16, verses 12 through 18. For those who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we love you this morning. We honor your word and we honor your presence here among us. God, would you come and speak to us in the, in the hearing of your word? God, in the proclamation of your word, would you give grace? Would you align our hearts with what you desire? God, you are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. God, when we are faithless, you are faithful. You cannot deny yourself. God, so would you teach us to love and delight in and enjoy and desire and see rightly your faithfulness. God, that we might remember the beauty of your covenant faithfulness made known in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, if you'll do something with me, if you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and open to Romans chapter nine. We're going we're gonna to spend some time in Romans 9 to 11 here in a few minutes, uh, but just get you prepared there so that when we, when we get to that spot, uh, we're ready to go. Uh, so just jump into the notes here with me. Uh, last week, we began to look at this section of scripture particularly, First uh, Chronicles 16, verses 12 to 18, uh, seeking to use them as a, as a case study in how to understand how God fulfills his word and how we as new covenant believers are to walk in a posture of remembering the covenant faithfulness of God, right? So we get to a place in a song like this. Uh, we see this here in First Chronicles. There's lots of places in the Psalms where we're called upon to remember God's covenant faithfulness. And then we talk about uh, covenants made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We hear things promised about land and offspring and, and, and those realities. And oftentimes, people in the new covenant, as, as we look back, we try to make sense of what do we do with these texts. And I really want to, the, the reason I wanted to drill in, and we got you know part one last week, we're, we're finishing up. So if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, go back. I, I'm kind of presupposing a few things, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, but go back and take some time to listen to it because we laid a framework uh, that we're gonna use to tie some things together. But I find so many Christians 
don't know how to make sense of certain Old Testament understandings. And I thought, man, in the time that we find ourselves, even in our current cultural moment with what's happening in the nation state of Israel to try to understand what are God's promises about? How does God demonstrate his covenant faithfulness? What does it mean as a Christian to look at the promises of the Old Testament and understand how God is faithful to them and how we can call upon the faithfulness of God? So that's my hope. Look at letter B here. So many believers don't actually understand what to do with these passages uh, that talk about promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This often leaves believers confused when reading the Old Testament, wondering what these passages mean or what they mean to them. You know what I outlined just briefly last week? So many times people have differing ways of making sense of these passages, right? You might, you might just have no idea what to do with them, so you just skip them and you go, well, I'll live in a state of not knowing. So I just read over them quick. They're part of my Bible reading. When I get to those parts, I just don't know what to do, right? Then there's some traditions that teach what I believe is a wrong understanding of how to interpret the Bible. And they say, every time you read the word Israel in the Old Testament, you just put in the church there. That that what God meant was the church. And so uh, anytime you read that, just say the church and then you can understand what that means. Uh, I I think that creates some problems I don't have time to get into, but I I don't think it's a good way of viewing it. Now then there's other people that fall on the far other end of the spectrum that goes, well, if God's word said something and it hasn't happened, that means the only way for him to be faithful is for that to fully happen in the end, right? And there's a sincerity to that but I actually don't think that is the way that the New Testament teaches us to read the promises, right? So the New Testament actually gives you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus a set of decoder lenses, so to speak, to read the Old Testament promises. It's like that twist and turn at the end of the movie that you didn't know until the very end, the aha moment, And then you go back and read it all and you go, that's what that was about. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus is like. And Paul spends a lot of time making sense of this and helping us do that together. So last week, we started uh, with six principles that undergird good New Testament presentation of God's covenant faithfulness expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, Here's the the difficulty with some of the ways that people teach us to engage them is I believe the New Testament gives us God's own interpretation of how he fulfills his covenant. So if we don't accept that, we are missing how he is showing that he's been faithful to his word. So these are the six principles. I'm just gonna fly over them. God's covenant faithfulness has been preeminently accomplished in Jesus. This is Paul's words in Romans 3. The righteousness of God, God's rightness is shown forth in Jesus. In him coming, living a life that no one could have in obedience to the law, submitting to death on a cross and being raised again in Christ Jesus, God is shouting to everyone that can listen and will listen. This is my covenant faithfulness put on display. Will you accept it? 
Do you wanna know how I've fulfilled every promise that I've ever made? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the yes to every promise that's been made. Number two, Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham, right? He is, uh, Paul comes along in Galatians chapter three and makes statements like, uh, when, when God came to Abraham and said, I'm gonna do things for your offspring, Paul interprets by the inspiration of, of the Spirit that that was always intended to be for one offspring. And he says the offspring, the seed, is Jesus. Number three, Jesus' people, Christ's people, those joined to him by faith, both Jew and Gentile, are now the true offspring of Abraham that are the inheritors of all of God's promises of covenant blessing are for those now in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. These are places like Romans 4, verse 16. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Paul says these kind of things explicitly. Number four, Israel was a type that was to be fulfilled in Christ. Now you might wonder, what does a type mean? A type is like a picture. It's a historical reality, a shadow of something that points to something that will be fulfilled and expanded in how it's fulfilled in the future. So when God made certain promises, he was using historical realities to speak of an expanded future reality that would be fulfilled in Jesus. Let me give you one that everybody's pretty aware of if, if, you're, if you've walked with Jesus for a little bit. The concept of a priesthood, the priesthood, right, is a type. God gave the priesthood in the Old Testament as a portrait of something that would be ultimately fulfilled and expanded in the ministry of Jesus. So now no longer is the priesthood necessary because Jesus has fulfilled the purpose for which it was there, right? And so Israel in some ways is like a type that Jesus fulfills. Number five, the land that was promised to Abraham is a type that is to be fulfilled in the new creation. This is what we see in places like Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews makes very, very explicit and specific when Abraham was wandering around the land that God promised him, he was looking for something that was beyond that. A city that, whose builder and maker was God, a city whose foundations were in the heavens and God was going to give to his people. Paul says in Romans 3 that Abraham was never just about, or Abraham's promise was never just about a little plot of dirt in the Middle East. He says Abraham was to be the, the heir of the world, the cosmos, all of creation. This is God's purpose. Right and, let, uh, and number six, Christ will one day come again to fully realize God's promises. So he's fulfilled them. He is the yes, and he's shown us how he is to fulfill them. But he's, we're, we're awaiting the day when those things are fully consummated together, when we see them fully. This is what the author of Hebrews talks about when he says, God has put all things under Jesus' feet but we don't see that fully yet, right? Like you look around the world and you go, wait, wait, wait. This is under Jesus's feet? Doesn't quite look like it. And he goes, we see Jesus. 
We see what Jesus has done. We see who he is. We see the reality of his life, death, resurrection, and the promise that one day he will come and make everybody aware, this is how I'm doing it. Those are the six principles we laid out there. So letter D, this means that as the new covenant people of God, we are to remember the covenant faithfulness of the Lord primarily by rehearsing, delighting in, and proclaiming the life, death, resurrection, and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we gather every single Sunday, y'all. We remember God's faithfulness by pointing to when he fulfilled his promises. God, you did it. God, you did it. God, you did it. This is what we delight in. This is what we remember. This is how we call upon your name and expect you to be who you are because you have done it all. This is our hope, right? This is the anchor of our hope that God has fulfilled his promises. Therefore, we understand one day he will consummate them. We're no longer looking for a future day in which he'll fulfill them. We're looking for a day when he pulls the veil back so everybody can see this is how I fulfilled them. This is the anchor for our soul, for our hope. It goes beyond the veil into God's presence so that we might find help and assistance to remain steadfast by his grace in times of difficulty. Okay, so then there's some real questions that actually come out of this, right? If this is all true, right? We laid that out last week. If this is true, there's some questions, right? Number one, is there still a purpose for, God's, or for people of Israel, right? Does, does, do the people of Israel, ethnic Jews, do they still have a place or a pur- purpose in God's plans? Does God have a purpose for the land? Right? And that's a big question that everybody's asking. Uh, people, people are wondering what's going on there. What, if any, does the present nation state of Israel have to do with God's purposes? Right? We, we come across a passage like that. I don't know if you ask those questions, you should. When you read these promises, you should ask those questions, even if you don't know what to do with them. Those should stir up in us, Right? How should we think about what's currently happening, right? There, there are questions that are still on the table when we lay these six things out. So we're gonna try to take those and apply them. And there's two reasons I wanna do this. Number one, I want us to be a Bible-saturated church, okay? I want us as a people to know God, right? And to know God, we have to know his word, And to know his word, we have to have frameworks by which to understand it, right? There there are things we need to know to understand it so we can rightly align our thinking with what God's word teaches. That's number one. We have to be a Bible-saturated church. Number two, the reason I want to apply it to what's going on right now isn't because I feel some pressure to give like an opinion or a stance Right, like everybody wants to take a stance. I watched a video where the guy goes, I haven't missed a stance yet. Uh, I, don't, I don't really want to take a stance. Um, what I wanna do is instruct us and compel us and demonstrate for us as a people, how do we think and reason biblically, right? 
I don't want to get thrown around and I don't want you to get thrown around by all of the emotional, like emotionally charged pressures of our time, right? All these things get stirred up and everybody's got a demand. I want to go, people of God, we need to learn how to slow down and think about things biblically. So I want to do that with us this morning. All right, Roman numeral two. So some of these questions are exactly what Paul attempts to answer in the, in the letter to Romans, right? In this letter, brief flyover, you know, we could, we could teach Romans forever. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached Romans every Friday night for 14 years and he didn't finish. In this letter, Paul is trying to expound the glory of the gospel of God as it's been made known in Jesus. That's where he starts. The gospel of God. This is God's good news for humanity made known in Christ, right? He's seeking to expound what this is about. The exposition of the gospel shows something. It shows that God has made a way for people to receive a right standing with God uh, and every attendant blessing that comes with that, right? That's essentially what covenant is. Covenant is a commitment by which we receive the ability to commune with God. We get to live in a covenant relationship with him. And there are blessings that attend the covenant fidelity of God made known within that commitment. Paul in the gospel is saying, or in Romans is saying, God has made a way for you to be brought into right standing with him when you didn't deserve it, when you hated him, when you were an enemy of him, when you had fallen, when you had rebelled, when you had turned the other way and run headlong against what he desired. He made a way for you to be made right with him. It's beautiful. And, and to receive in that every attendant blessing that comes. That's Ephesians 1.3. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Every blessing. This right standing, Paul makes known, comes as a free gift. Something that is given. Something that is revealed. Through the work of Jesus Christ. And the gift is given to any, any, any who will simply receive that gift by faith. That's the glorious, wonderful, life-altering reality of the gospel. Anyone, anyone, anyone who will humbly submit to the way that God has revealed how you become right with him, which is, I have nothing. I am a sinner. I was your enemy. You made a way in Christ, and I humbly receive that by faith. Any and all can receive that. One of the realities of this gospel is that although it was promised beforehand in the scriptures, the manner in which it came about was different than any of us would have expected. Again, this is the twist at the end of the story. The one that nobody saw clearly. 
First, God inaugurated this by the coming of the Son of God in absolute humility. He didn't come as a warrior king. He came as a lowly servant, born of a virgin in obscurity from a know-nothing town from nowhere, working with his hands as a carpenter, living a life of obedience under the eyes of his father, raised up with a message to proclaim good news to the captives and rejected by those he came to save and died a death of a criminal. This is how God demonstrated he was faithful to his covenant. This is, it wasn't the manner anybody thought. Everybody thought, you made all these promises to us. Come and drive out all the nations of the world and give us the things that we deserved. And God said, the problem wasn't the nations. The problem was us, every one of us, that we were like sheep gone astray. And we needed to be, to be brought back into right standing with God. So he does this in the manner that no one expected in the cross. And then his life and ministry were then vindicated when he was raised from death on the third day, showing that he had victory over sin, death, and the grave. Then he sent his spirit on the church and the door of salvation was thrown open to the Gentiles to become recipients of God's covenant fidelity through the same means that it was offered to the Jews. So although this message is beyond glorious, it does raise a really significant question. Reading the Old Testament, we're continually confronted with the reality that Israel plays a central role in God's redemptive purposes and the promises to them that are there as a people, right? The turn of events around the first coming of Jesus result in the Gentiles receiving the blessing of salvation, the blessings of God's covenant, while Israel on the whole rejected him. The question then would be, if the blessings of God's covenant have now come to the Gentiles, and those who believe in Christ are now the offspring of Abraham, what has become of Israel? So beyond that, this, if you're paying attention, raises a more significant question. If God made promises that seemed to then be thrown off, was he unable to accomplish his word? That's the issue. The issue isn't really just about what do you do with this people? The issue is, can God fulfill his word? This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Or worse yet, does God change his mind? Does God start something, get tired, find it's harder than he thought, and go, I need a better idea? The implications of this question are far-reaching for God's ability to be faithful to his covenant promises. So this is ex exactly what Paul is seeking to address in Romans 9 to 11. He's attempting to definitively show that God's word has not failed in how he is presently accomplishing his purpose in Christ. Okay, so this is the primary thrust of these chapters. The primary thrust of these chapters is not about 
What is God going to do in the future? The primary thrust of these chapters are God is now being faithful to his word. And he will show us how. He does this by demonstrating that God's present faithfulness is directly in line with how he has always worked and what he has promised through the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so he does this. We can't walk through this, obviously. You're like, Ron, you can't get through three chapters in one morning. I'm gonna summarize it here for you in five questions that Paul asks. And I'm gonna walk you through this. This is, I pray to give you handholds and then you gotta run and dig into this. You gotta go put your face in this and look at it yourself. Has God's word failed is question number one. Romans 9, 6. The first question Paul implicitly asks, he's assuming that the reader is asking this question. Has God failed to accomplish his word? His response is that God's word by no means has failed. And he substantiates this claim by showing that God never intended the promises of Abraham to be understood as promises that the covenant blessings would be universally experienced among all of his ethnic descendants. Look at Romans 9, 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. So Paul wants us to be very, 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 very clear. Could God get what he wants? Yes. God's word did not fail. No chance, no thought. Now let me show you how. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what he's saying, he's going to put together a complex idea. He's saying all that descend from Israel, meaning ethnic descendants, do not belong to the true Israel, meaning those that experience God's covenant redemption. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. I will show you how. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it was not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise counted as offspring. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament. He goes, if you have eyes to see this, God always fulfilled his promises to Abraham's descendants in a particular and small way. We never see that God's statement that I will bless you and I will bless your offspring and I will give you these things. Never once from the Old Testament is it explicitly or clearly stated this is to all of Abraham's descendants. And we see that from the very jump. Abraham has uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And God goes, Isaac gets the covenant promises. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And he goes, it's Jacob, not Esau. And so we see the promises of the covenant are for those that we see in Romans, the the word is, are elect of God. That God has chosen. Then you got the question. Okay, if God does it this way, is he unjust? This is question number two. 
implication, and this is where everybody asks, if God elects some and doesn't elect others, is he unjust? Is that even fair? That's a question we all should wrestle with. Paul knows you're going to. He knows that's going to rub us the wrong way. He knew it then. The inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit knows that you're bothered by it. So he's going to ask it. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? Is God wrong for doing it this way? Right here, Paul asks the question, is God just to elect one son to receive the covenant blessing and not another? To this question, Paul declares that God has always demonstrated that it is his divine right, his divine prerogative to have mercy upon whom he will and to harden whom he will. Now you might again ask, how is that fair? You're asking the wrong question because Paul has already demonstrated in Romans 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God all deserve nothing but God's wrath. The question isn't how can God pick or elect or choose some and not others. It's why in the world would God choose any? That's the question. What does it say about God that he has mercy at all? That's the question we should be asking. Not putting God on the dock and making him prove to us why he's just. We go, None deserved it. And the fact that any receive mercy is nothing but your scandalous kindness. You didn't have to do it. The fact that God chooses to show mercy to anyone demonstrates something glorious about his heart. God has the right to do this. The potter has the right over the clay to make with it what he will to accomplish his purposes. The clay does not get to hold the potter in contempt. This demonstrates for all that it's not according to human will or human exertion or birthright that God's purposes are accomplished, but according to his unmerited grace. Look at Romans 9, 14. Uh, look at 15 to 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. So Paul answers this question for us. Then he moves on to another question. He demonstrates that more through Old Testament passages, and then he moves on to another one. You can turn the page. Romans 9, verse 30, Paul asks the question, so then why, how, what, why did the Gentiles get something they weren't looking for? Israel was looking for this. They were running after it. They were trying. What, how did this happen? How did the pig-loving, bacon-loving Gentiles, how did they find it? They were in darkness, running around, bumping into stuff all the time. How in the world did they find mercy? And the People of your possession, with your presence, who you gave your law to, who saw things, they missed it. How did this happen? Paul goes, I'm glad you asked. He asks it for you, actually. If you didn't know to ask this question, Paul asks it for you. Paul then asks, why the Gentiles? 
were able to attain something they were not seeking, while the Jews did not attain it, though they sought it? The answer is simple. Because the Gentiles submitted to the way God chose to reveal his righteousness. Namely, they submitted to receiving the gospel by faith. That's the simple answer. Look at Romans 9, 30. What shall we say then? We say that the Gentiles that did not pursue righteousness attained it. Israel who pursued the law, they did not succeed in reaching it. Why? It's a fair question. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. And because of this, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. He goes on in verse two of chapter 10. He says, I bear witness to my fellow brethren from Israel that they have zeal for God, but they they don't know what they're running after because they will not submit to the way that God designed it. They're ignorant that the righteousness of God, his covenant faithfulness was made known in Jesus, not by their works, not by their attaining it, but by humble submission saying we couldn't do it, we receive This is why it happened that way. So then he lays that out more, expands on it more. We get to chapter 11. So the next question would then be, has God rejected Israel? It's a fair question, right? If they've stumbled, if they were pursuing a wrong way, has God rejected them? The implication might be rightly to conclude or wrongly to conclude, I'm sorry, which means that that Jesus or God has cast off the Jewish people. And sadly, a massive portion of the church has believed this through the church history, that, that God has cast off his people, which I think is a, you know, it's like, just read this verse and you, you, you get the, the, the thrust of it. Paul argues that this could not be farther from the truth. And he uses himself as an example, right? Look at this in verse one of chapter 11. I ask, has God rejected his people? No. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject the people that he foreknew. The ones from the descendants of Israel that he foreknew, he did not reject them. And then he shows that God has always worked through a believing remnant. Right? This is what he's talking about when he talks about Elijah. And he says, uh, Elijah stands up and goes, hey, I'm the only one following you. And he says, no, 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 no. I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. What Paul's getting at is God always worked through a faith-filled remnant all through the Old Testament. So why would he do it differently now? That's the implication. Has he cast them off? No, no. He's working through a remnant according to faith. Even now, go to page three. Question number five. Does the stumbling of Israel mean that they have fallen beyond salvation? Right? This could be an implication. The question could be there if they've been hardened by God, which Paul says they have, that it's part of God's purpose that a hardening has come on uh, a majority or, or, or a, a portion of those descended from Israel, if there's a hardening that's upon them, does this mean that they've stumbled so far that they cannot be saved? 
And the answer yet again is, may that never be. Paul wants the Gentile believers to remember something. They are, and he uses this example from horticulture. You are a foreign branch. And God had enough power to take you off of the wild shoot, bring you into the root, and attach you to the covenant blessings and make it work. That's how much God's power, how, how much power he has. Then it would stand, wouldn't it be the easiest thing in the world for him to take a branch that naturally belongs to that root and bring them back and make them experience it? If they do so through the means that he has ordained, which is humble faith in the Messiah Jesus, Right? This is a lesser to the greater question, right? If God has enough power to make you, again, bacon-loving, wandering in darkness, pagan Gentiles, recipients of his covenant love, how much easier would it be for him to take those who have been prepared and bring them by faith into his kingdom. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. God has the power. So letter H, there remains a question then related to ethnic descendants of Israel and their possible future ingathering into salvation. This is an issue that believers understand and interpret differently. I, I think there's ways in which this is an intramural debate uh, this is like a state's rights issue, not a nation issue, right? Do you know the difference of what I'm saying there? In doctrine, there are doctrines that are nation border issue. If you leave, you're no longer in the nation. Then there's issues that are state's rights, right? Like we believe this here and that there, but we're still in the same country. This is one of those. Some believe that Paul means that in a future day near the second coming, every ethnic descendant of Israel will be saved. It's a plausible, potential version of this passage when he gets to what he says in verses 25 to 27. Others believe that Paul is stating that the partial hardness is gonna remain all the way until the end of this age and that Jesus, that, that the all Israel being saved here is the entire remnant in their fullness are saved in the manner of faith by Jesus. Okay, but regardless of the interpretation, that's a place that we can talk and discuss and grapple with. There are several points I wanna encourage us to hold as Christians related to the viewing of Jewish people. And I wanna, I wanna keep us in this middle ground, okay? Number one thing is salvation is only through Jesus. Okay, there are swaths of uh, Christians that believe that there is such an intense future purpose for Israel that it becomes almost this like metric of whether or not um, you're standing with Jesus, right? Or there's a salvation manner outside of them, right? This is a big part of what's called dispensationalism. It's the popularized pop eschatology of like, if you're, if you're one generation, it's late great planet Earth. If you're another generation, it's left behind. Um, 
Not really good theology, especially not good in popular versions. There's this sloppiness that so exalts a potential future purpose for Israel that it almost can sound like it happens outside of Jesus. We have to be unapologetic, even if there is a day of future salvation for a mass of ethnic Jews, it will only be through Jesus Christ. It will only come in a way that further emphasizes that they were not owed something. It was only because of the mercy of God, not based on ethnicity, not based on anything that was owed, only on the severe grace and mercy of Christ Jesus. That's one side. Number two, I do think we should cultivate affections and prayers for salvation, right? The apostle does here in Romans 10, verse one, he declares his heart desire is that they would be saved. I think that Gentile Christians glorify the purposes of God by humbly seeking to live into his covenant faithfulness and blessings in, a, in fullness without a spirit of superiority or arrogance toward others, longing that Christ would extend mercy in the same way that we have. Why would we not cultivate affections, right? Like, do we not want to see God save people? The answer should be, you should yell yes, right? Our heart's desire and prayer should be for salvation. Our hearts should long for Jesus to make known his mercy in beautiful ways to any and all who would hear. Let me apply a parable. One helpful parable could be understanding these things would be the parable of the two sons and the gracious father found in Luke 15. Some ways Gentile converts are like the younger brother, right? We're, we love the pigs, right? We're in the pig styes. We love it. And we came to our senses and had no no, I mean the audacity that we would be able to run into the Father's heart and say, save me. I don't have anything. Is unthinkable. Absolutely. If you don't feel how unthinkable that is, we don't connect with the reality of sin and we don't connect with the reality of God's mercy. If you aren't scandalized at the fact that you should not have a place in the Father's house, we are not aware of the, of the unreal mercy that the Lord gives, that he runs out and he falls on us and kisses our neck and gives us a ring and gives us a robe and re-shods re our feet and brings us in and gives us the fatted calf and a party. That's crazy town. When we said we want nothing to do with you and we hate you, that's unreal. However, we must not imagine that the father would not be delighted to welcome the older brother back into the house in order that the party would really get started, right? I mean, think of it this way. In so many ways, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are like the older brother, right? They stayed in the father's house, so to speak, but they're unwilling to submit to the mercy of the father, they think it's the staying in the house that gets them everything. And the father says, no, 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 all you have to do is ask me. 
Ask me. And Paul actually makes it a a big point that his ministry is intended to magnify the ministry (laughs) magnify the ministry among Gentiles. Magnify is ministry to the Gentiles. Um, He magnifies his ministry among the Gentiles because it creates the tension point of the older brother, right? The younger brother comes in and we get the fatted calf and we get all all the things spread out before us and the older brother goes, why? Why? That belongs to me. And the father goes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Come in the house. And why would we as a younger brother want to look at the older brother and go, no, we're better without him. Those are just some principles for our thinking. All right, Roman numeral three. I'm going to try to get this done too. This is a whole thing in and of itself. Okay, so how do we make sense of the present nation state of Israel then? It's a tricky subject. If you've read the news, it's a contested land. Let me give you quick background. These are principles, no way comprehensive. And I'm going to fly over this. So Abraham had two sons. The Bible clearly identifies that the promises of God were to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael, the son of Hagar that had come uh, from Abraham. Whether there's a belief in a future promise to ethnic Israel in the gospel, scripture is clear that the promised plan of God for redemption is to come through Isaac, ultimately centering on Jesus, the true offspring of Isaac. In the early 600s, a man named Muhammad began receiving a series of revelations by what he said was the angel Gabriel in a mountain cave near Mecca. Go read Galatians 1, 8 and 9. This wasn't an angel, it was a demon. If any angel shows up and speaks a different gospel, he's accursed. He is accursed. This was the beginning of the religion of Islam. In the visions, this angel gave Muhammad a different interpretation of biblical events, outlining that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, who was the son of promise. So reinterpreted the entirety of the whole Old Testament line of how God made promises to his people. So it is a counterfeit gospel. It is a counterfeit uh, declaration of what is true. In Islam, Jerusalem is the third most holy place outside of Mecca and Medina. We must understand that from the beginning, the teaching of Islam is a doctrine of demons. This is a different gospel designed to call the truth of God and God's word into question. There's fundamentally a different starting point than the starting point of the Bible. This fosters a wrong way of viewing the world and the promises of God. Okay, so this is the combat point. Then you see this nation of Palestine and the reemergence of Israel. So in 70 AD, here's a quick history lesson. You can go back and read this. You can find stuff all over the internet. But in 70 AD, The Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem. After a series of rebellions and upheavals by the Jewish people, they were tired of it. They came in, destroyed the second temple, sent them to the ends of the world. After several more uprisings in 135, the Roman Empire banned Jewish people from Israel and repopulated the nation, renamed it Syria-Palestine, likely a name derived from the biblical concept of the Philistines. 
After 1,800 years, the UN granted national status to Israel in 1948. Under the partition plan for Palestine, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are granted to Palestine as nation states for Palestinians. Since 1948, obviously there's been nothing but conflict and war and uh, unrest and tension. I wanna, I wanna name two things before we go to the next one. It's important to understand the movement to reclaim the land for Jewish people known as Zionism, which is, if you are not aware, explicitly and self-understandingly secular. Statedly wanting to do away with the Judaism that was before and create a new Jew. If you've read anything related to Zionism, a secular purpose to re be replanted, though it may be used by a, a, a tool that's used by the providence of God to accomplish his grand purposes, it does not mean that that is evidence of God's favor or blessing. It also does not mean that this is how God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. In his mysterious providence, God has allowed them to have national sovereignty at this moment in history. But we must not misapply the, re the emergence or the reemergence of the nation state of Israel as evidence of God's favor or blessing upon the Jewish people. Why? Why do I say that? Because throughout the scripture, the blessing of the covenant is always tied to walking in covenant fidelity with God. So which we've seen this morning only comes now through faith in Jesus, right? If we're, if we're not clear on this, we're gonna get sentimentalistic and we're gonna, we're gonna baptize things that don't need to be baptized. Therefore, we have to understand that a people living in treason against God are not able to receive the blessing of God's promises. I've belabored this point this morning. The blessings of the covenant are exclusively held in Jesus. He's the door, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. So the emergence of the nation state of Israel as it stands today, this is a hot take, but it's biblical, is not God fulfilling his promises to them. It may play a different purpose, in God's providence, and it does. But it is not to be equated with God fulfilling those promises. Those promises are housed in Jesus Christ. And a people in treason cannot presume upon the promises of God. Okay, number four. This is not political. You could maybe think this is political. However, it is clear this conflict is spiritual. This is driven by principalities and powers. This is, this has demonic charge behind it. And God is working to accomplish his purposes. So there's spiritual, it's religious, right? Deep-seated religious beliefs, it's cultural. Okay, number five, there is a war for Jerusalem. The Bible teaches us that Jesus will one day return there. The city ultimately belongs to him. He's the son of David who will inherit both Jerusalem and the whole world, likely based on the nature of biblical witnesses, which we can't get into. But Jesus will return at a time when the nations of the earth are in conflict with one another, a global mass conflict around the Middle East. Okay, so then you're going, is this that? I don't know. 
I don't know. And if you think you do, just hold your horses. <laughs> what I do know is Jesus is coming. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So live with a sober spirit, a mind that marks the children of the day. Don't give yourself to wanton pleasures or we need to turn from immorality, turn from unrighteousness and seek to know the Lord. All right, let me just do these. I, thank you for your patience, but we're, we're gonna do these. So how should we respond? I'm gonna give you eight things quick. Some I'll go really fast. Number one, first we gotta have a spirit of humility. Understand that our opinions and assessments are really limited in scope, right? We know, I, I like to say it, when, when, when we're walking in emotionally charged times and everybody's got their opinions about everything, you have a teaspoon of information in a five-gallon bucket worth of meaning. Act like it. Act like that. Don't presume you know everything. We are limited in scope, so we should be slow to speak when we pronounce judgment. This includes a spirit of grace extended particularly towards other believers that might hold a different view. Spend less time on social media, more time in the Bible. Okay? That's, that's how we cultivate humility. More time in the Bible, less time on Instagram. Less time with Fox, more time with Jesus. Okay, number two, be clear on the, on the gospel. We have to be clear that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is not based on ethnic identity, but on inclusion into the true vine that is Jesus Christ. This is true both for Palestinians and Jewish people. Any who are not of faith are enemies of God and need to be born again by the power of the Spirit. I've been thinking over and over and over again of at the beginning of Joshua, when Joshua is coming into the land, Joshua chapter five, he walks into the land, he sees this huge angel, he's the captain of the Lord's armies. He's got this big old sword, and Joshua comes up and goes, sweet, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he goes, no. Jesus is an on his own team. You are either on Jesus's team or you are not. Jesus does not get on their team or their team, right? So is Jesus for the Jews or the Palestinians? No, Jesus is for himself. And he is for any and all who will humble themselves in a spirit of faith and repentance and receive him. We gotta be clear on that or else we're gonna get sentimental or we're gonna get really angry. We gotta be in the middle. Number three, stand against injustice. Be clear on what's not just on both accounts, right? The actions of Hamas that we saw several weeks ago were vile and atrocious. They will be dealt with according to God's eternal holiness. That needs to be said, right? Pillaging, raping, killing, that is vile. Needs to be seen as such. And I do also think this needs to be said. We need to understand that Romans 13, there are places where nations need to protect their citizens. That is important to know as well. And that creates a whole hornet's nest because what happens when the people that you are trying to protect your citizens from 
put their stuff in hospitals, right? That's issues that are really being faced right now. Number four, this one might seem unrelated, but it's not. Reject the spirit of this age. Okay, there's a spirit in the Western world that is at work right now that is catalyzing around exalting, affirming, and honoring anything that is done in the name of overthrowing so-called oppression and injustice. This is unbiblical applications of what do we do with injustice. God gives us the way forward in injustice. He gives processes. In the church, it looks like Matthew 18. In the world, it looks like Romans 13. Outside of that, the church is called to, if, if we are being oppressed, this is, this is future for us as a church. If we're being oppressed, the call is not justify anything you will to overthrow it. What is the call? Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Pray for your oppressors. Bless those who hate you. Right? This is the call of Jesus. Now, he's given us ways to process these things, but we have to submit to them. And when we feel so much anger or sadness or pain pent up at what's happening, the answer is not cast off the process and do whatever. The answer is submit ourselves to the just judge who will do what is right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Remember that. Okay, pray for peace. Pray for the church. Pray for a bold witness. So pray a lot. Pray more than you give your opinion. That's, that's the essence of that. Number eight, remember in our world, in our own lives, remember the wall-shattering power of the gospel. Remember to seek to embody and delight in the fact that the gospel tears down walls of opposition. Jesus declared the greatest hermeneutic or witness to his truth would be when the world witnessed his church walking in a spirit of love. The greatest witness to God's power will be when the people of God submit to his ways and walk in a spirit of love with one another. And we don't get to define what that looks like. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love looks like. Love looks like something. It looks like obedience. It looks like obedience in the face of not wanting to do it. Love embodied by the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the greatest witness to the life-changing, wall-shattering power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.